Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson, and in the studio today at Nebraska Christian Schools, I'm here with Pastor John Purdyman. John, welcome to the program today. Thanks for having me, Gordon. John is the senior pastor at Grace Bible Fellowship in Central City, Nebraska. He was our speaker today at Nebraska Christian during our chapel time. Before we listen to your message, John, I'd like to ask you a little bit about ministry at Grace Bible. If you could maybe update our listeners a little bit on what's happening with your ministry this year and maybe some things you're looking forward to. Sure, Gordon. I appreciate the question. Right now at Grace Bible, we are in the process of working out some kinks in in different areas. We're a family-driven church, and therefore our ministry is often drawn aside from our appropriate direction, which is the family. So right now we're in the process of making some changes in that area as well as updating and remodeling the building. Now, next year, you're bringing in a speaker I just heard about. I think I believe it's Justin Peters. And I know that's a whole year away, but our listeners might be interested to know when that is. Again, it's a year away, but I think it's worth mentioning. Absolutely. We are excited about having Justin Peters with Worldview Weekend to come in, in September of next year. Just starting the process of planning that right now, so we would encourage you to put that on your calendar if possible and plan on joining us for that week. With that, let's join Pastor John with today's message. A couple of basic biblical laws that need to be understood prior to tackling the text that we're going to look at this morning because they both apply to this text. The first law of interpreting Scripture is what's known as the law of first mention. Uh, anytime in the Bible that you find a perhaps a miracle or a parable or something of that nature mentioned for the first time, you're supposed to pay special attention to that because it's laying a foundation for all the rest of the miracles that will be mentioned or all the rest of the parables. Whatever sequence it begins, it's laying a foundation by which and through which we can understand the rest of the Word of God in regards to that. So as we come to John chapter number 2, we're going to look at Jesus Christ's first miracle. His first miracle is going to lay a foundation for all the rest of His miracles. And so it's important that we delve in and understand the biblical truths that are being dealt with in Jesus Christ's first miracle. The second truth that's important to understand is the use of spiritual language to reveal scriptural truth. Oftentimes, Jesus Christ in His Word uses language that's difficult to understand. A matter of fact, the Scripture says on a number of occasions that it's written for the very purpose of those who are not spiritually discerning that they not understand. Matthew chapter number 13, the question, the disciples asked Jesus the question, why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak in these stories? And Jesus' response is, is so that hearing, they cannot hear. And seeing, they cannot see. In other words, Jesus Christ spoke in such a way that it took spiritual discernment to be able to interpret what Jesus Christ was actually saying. And when Jesus Christ would go out and say there was a sower who went out to sow, the spiritually discerning would say, what, what is Jesus Christ speaking of that's going to benefit me spiritually? It's going to help me grow the carnal-minded uh, looks at that and begins to think about how does this apply to farming. And so Jesus Christ writes in such a way as, again, to reveal a hidden truth to those who are spiritually discerning and to hide something from those who are not spiritually discerning. 
as I was preparing, I was thinking of you guys' idea of texting. And I know that your texting has codes in it. I get some texts sometimes from some younger people in our church asking questions, and I think to myself, what in the world are they asking me? It takes me a while to figure it out because there's a certain texting code, I guess. Maybe it's shorthand. I don't know. It's quicker. But it's hard for me because I'm old to figure out what this new texting language is, and I, I don't expect probably to ever be able to figure it out. But it's kind of the same idea. God wrote to us in such a way as to reveal things to those who are spiritually discerning. In other words, God wrote things for us who are saved, who know the Lord, who have the Spirit of God living within us, that we might understand, that we might comprehend, that we might grasp onto the deeper truths, while at the same time, those who are not saved, those who are not spiritually discerning, they cannot and will not understand those truths. And you say, why would God do that? What would God's purpose be in doing that? And, and that's another sermon all in, in and of itself. It's important for us all to understand the need and the necessity for the indwelling Holy Spirit. If we're going to understand the Word of God, to know that we're not capable of doing it on our own, that it takes a dependence on the Spirit of God living within us to understand it. And that's what Jesus Christ lays out here. Matthew 13, I mentioned earlier, Jesus answers the question, Why do you speak in parables? Jesus says, so hearing they won't hear and seeing they won't see. And then he goes on in the latter part of that text in verse 16 and 17. He says, but your eyes have been blessed because seeing you see and hearing you hear. And so he says, in essence, you've been given a blessing. Your eyes have been opened. Your ears have been opened. You can see, you can hear, you can understand the truths. And for that, we ought to be thankful that God has given us that blessing. John 2 is one of those texts, and I want to take some time this morning. I don't have a lot of time, but I want to take our remaining time and deal with unpacking this text so that we can understand what Jesus Christ is dealing with here. So if you're there in your Bibles, the Bible says in verse number 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So here we are. We'll stop there. We'll move on here in a moment. Jesus Christ and his disciples go to a wedding. The Bible says that his, his mother's there. Probably some relative, some relation, some friend of Jesus and of his family getting married. This was a pretty significant celebration. Matter of fact, these celebrations often lasted a week. For those families who didn't have a lot of money... It was very significant or very important that they made sure that they had enough set aside for the whole week of the wedding ceremony. Or as we find here in this text, they're going to run out. There's not going to be anything left towards the latter part of the week. You know, the last day or so, they're without anything to drink. And that's a problem because you've got a bunch of people sitting around, standing around. There's nothing to drink. And it's a, it's a celebration. It's a time of festivities, and, and when you have a time of festivities and a time of celebration, uh, you need something to drink and something to eat, right? Okay, that's what makes things festive and what makes things exciting. So Jesus comes to this wedding. They run out of wine. They run out of something to drink. And Jesus' mother says they have run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Or in other words, what does their lack of wine have to do with me? Jesus asked a very simple question, Mary, why are you coming to me with these people's problem? 
Why are you coming to me with these people's difficulty? Why are you coming to me with these people's lack? He says at the end of verse number 4, he says, My time has not yet come. In other words, what Jesus is is saying here is, there will come a time when my responsibility will be to deal with their problems. But it's not here yet. It's not here yet. And we all know that that time is, is going to come at the end of this chapter when Jesus Christ dies on the cross and he deals with the sins of mankind. But Mary is kind of pushing the issue. So Jesus Christ, verse 5, his mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Okay? His mother says to his disciples, you know, whatever Jesus says, do it, because he he's a special kid. I don't think Mary and Joseph understood fully how special he was at this time. They hadn't seen all the miracles he was going to perform. But they knew he was virgin born. They knew that God came and promised he was going to be special. But perhaps they were still in that stage of waiting to see what was going to happen. Verse 6 Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Okay, so imagine in your mind you have these large stone water pots here, and there's six of them. Each one holds 20 or 30 gallons. So these are fairly large water pots. There are six of them there, I believe, because there's a representation. Number one, the Bible says it's according to the Jewish law of purification or the, the Jewish manner of purification. And I'll explain that to you here in a moment. But I believe also that six is the number of man. And I think that these six water pots are a, a picture of mankind. That each one of these water pots, and, and we'll, we'll see it here in just, a, in just a few moments, but each one of these water pots pictures our lives and what our lives are about and what our lives are full of. The Bible says that they, they took these six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification. The Greek word here for the manner of purification is catharismos, and it means to expiate something. It means to purify, to, to purge. In other words, the, these water pots, the Bible says, were set aside so that they could be used for purging something out of them. Okay? Confusion about this text has often been that Jesus Christ is promoting drunkenness in this text. Jesus Christ is promoting the consumption of alcohol Jesus Christ is promoting, or Jesus Christ is a bartender himself, because he actually performs the transformation of turning the water into wine. Hopefully this morning I can destroy any thoughts that that's what this text is about, because it's not. Matter of fact, the whole idea of intoxication or alcohol in this text is not what the meaning is. It's not the purpose of the text, and we'll deal with that here in a moment. So here's the manner of purification. What they would do is they would take these large pots, 30 gallons, so obviously they didn't carry them. What they would do is they would fill up smaller pots and they would pour them into these pots. Sometimes they would fill them up 90%. Sometimes they would fill them up 75%, but no less than 75% they would fill them. And they would be full of water, and they would be that family's source of water for a season. Now... The reason why they would leave that last 25% or that last 10%, depending on the situation, is that they would add wine to the water. And what the wine would be for, wine is a, wine is a form of, of purification. They would let the wine ferment for a while so that it would become a, a purifying agent. So you would imagine, if you were to drink water today that hadn't gone through some type of purification system, that there's a lot of danger to that. I remember 
about two years ago, I went to Peru, South America, and I remember them telling me, don't drink any water unless you have, because my system, I'd never been there before, and my system couldn't, wasn't able to handle the water there because there were, some, there were some impurities in that water that my body had never dealt with. And there were some parasites in the water, and there were some things like that. You say, oh, that's disgusting. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty disgusting. But, but there was a danger for me to get very, very sick from drinking the water without it having gone through some type of purification. So here in the text, what Jesus is saying to them is that there was a purification process. They would put this water in these gigantic basins. Then they would pour wine on the top of them. And then that wine would, would act as a purification element to the water. And it would purify that water. So then that water would be appropriate to drink. Meaning that they could drink it and it wouldn't hurt them. Okay? The wine obviously would serve other roles as well. It was a, a form of sweetener. It would sweeten the water. It would give it some taste so that it was pleasurable. But know this, that it was not meant for intoxication. That was not its purpose this was not a drunken wedding. People weren't running around in a drunken stupor. Okay, this was a, a very, very serious wedding, a very, very enjoyable celebration. These people were drinking this water that was mixed with wine, and they called it wine because it was now purified. It was changed. It was transformed. So to understand that process, Paul talks about this a little bit to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul tells Timothy this, No longer drink just water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Paul tells Timothy, don't just drink water by itself because it's, it's, it's hurting you. It's, it's killing you. It's causing you to have stomach issues. I remember one day when I was in Peru, we went to a lady's house and you eat and drink what you're offered. And you don't question it. You do it because it's the right thing to do. I remember drinking some water because it was offered to me, and, and the rest of that day, I was very, very sick to my stomach. Paul writes to him, and Timothy, he's got some infirmities in his stomach, and Paul says to him, don't just drink the water straight, but mix it with alcohol, mix it with wine to purify it, so that you don't continue to have to deal with these, these stomach problems. Another verse is Proverbs 23 and verse 31. The Bible says, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, and when it stirs or swirls around smoothly. In other words, the Bible is dealing with in Proverbs here, don't look at the wine, don't drink the wine, don't participate in the wine when it's not mixed, when it's a highly intoxicating drink to bring the results of, of intoxication, which are, study scriptures, you'll find that the Lord never promotes intoxication or drunkenness. He calls it a sin. And so here he is not promoting that. So here you have this purification process. In this wedding, they run out of water. They run out of this wine. They're, they're empty. Perhaps there's a day or so left. We don't, we don't know that. The text doesn't tell us. They don't know what to do. Okay, the Bible says, if you read on with me, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that they had made wine, did not know where it came from. But the servant who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the, when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. 
This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now you notice again as well, the Bible says that when they would come out with the last part of the alcohol, they always brought out a lesser, a lesser purified element to drink, okay? Because they, because they put their best stuff out first. And then later what they did was they, you know, they had a little, maybe a little bit of wine left and a, a lot of water. So they would make the mixture a little bit more watered down and it would be far less satisfying, far less tasty. It wasn't as good. So kind of here's the story of what we're dealing with in John, in John chapter number 2. What I want to spend the, the remainder of our time this morning, very quickly, I want to break it down for you and I want to give you the meaning of the text. And what Jesus Christ is teaching here is the difference between us cleansing ourselves and Jesus cleansing us. The difference between self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness. The difference between His ability to make you pure and your ability to make yourself pure. That's the advice, the counsel, the instruction that Jesus Christ is giving here in this text is He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about what is the gospel. And He's illustrating and He's teaching it through this miracle. Let's go through the text again very quickly and see what we can find. The Bible says in verse number 2, And when they had ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First and foremost, when you think about the idea, the concept of Jesus Christ cleansing us from our sins, the first thing that we must realize and recognize is that before Jesus or without Jesus, we are both accountable and responsible for purifying and cleansing ourselves. Okay, Under the Old Testament law, and again, the Old Testament law has not been done away with at this point. The reason Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Is because they were still under the law. They still had the responsibility of obeying the law fully. If they did not obey the law fully, they would be condemned because they were accountable for their own cleansing and their own purification. They were accountable for themselves because Jesus Christ had not yet died on the cross. And I submit to you this morning, whether you like it or not, if you're without Jesus Christ this morning, if you're not saved, if Jesus Christ has not washed away your sins, that you're accountable for your own life. You will stand before God one day and He will judge you. He will judge you in direct comparison to His law. And your purity will be based solely on your ability and on your history of how well you've kept the law. James tells us this, if we've offended in one point of the law, we've offended in the whole law. If we've broken one of God's commandments, we've broken all of God's commandments. So if we stand before God in the situation here in the Jews where Jesus says, Hey, what do I have to do with this situation? I haven't died yet. This is not yet my time. I'm not yet dealing with their problems. I'm not yet going to take care of their sins. They're responsible for their own purification. And what Jesus Christ is doing is, is Jesus Christ, His goal, His purpose, His initiative is to get the Jews to see how needy they are. The reason for the law and the reason for Jesus Christ not intervening in many cases is to get us to see where we're at, to see what we need. In this case, he deals with it. He says, he says, woman, what is this problem to do with me? This is their problem. Let them deal with it. Let's go on. First of all, notice this. Before Jesus, man is responsible for his own purity, his own righteousness. You in the same boat. Number two, realize this. 
The Bible says in the latter parts here, verse 10, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when his guests have well drunk, then the inferior. Now here's what Jesus is saying. Know this, that your righteousness that is self-evident and self-produced will always decline. Remember that. Your righteousness will always decline. The Bible says that those who set out their own goodness, those who set out their own purity, those who set out and produce their own wine, when they come to produce another pot of wine, it's going to be what? It's going to be inferior. It's going to be less pure than their original pot. And then if they come to set out another pot or another sequence of going through that process of purification, it's even going to be less pure and so forth and so on. And we have this process that we go through and we see it in our world today, the fact that we're declining morally generation after generation after generation because man is not getting better and better. Man is getting worse and worse. Man who is dependent on his own righteousness is always going to be declining. And Jesus says, hey, if you're, if you're depending on your own ability to purify this, every time you go back to be purified, you're going to come back a little less pure. And some of you guys and some of you girls, you've experienced that in your own lives. You've seen a decline, a constant... And, and, and you know, it's, it's amazing. It's methodical. It's constant. It's slow. And it, and it just destroys you slowly but surely. And you keep coming back and you think, I'm, I'm pure, I'm good, I, everything's okay. And you're just a little less than what you were before. And then you say, I, I've had people say this to me before, and I said it when I was younger, I was like... Dad, you know what? When I get in my 20s, I'll do the things that are the right things to do. Do you know what I found? I found that when I got in my 20s, it was more difficult to do the right things than it was when I was a teenager. Our own righteousness is not going to go up. Our own righteousness is going to continue to decline. This is the message that Jesus Christ is giving us here in this text, giving his disciples, giving these people, is that their wine, their purification, their self-righteousness is always going to decline. And if we see that in our lives, kids, we've got to evaluate where we're at spiritually. Why, why do I keep going this way and I'm not going this way? Why do I keep trying to have to deal with my own impurities and Jesus isn't dealing with them? Our own righteousnesses will always decline. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, but every man and imposter will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Number three, let's go on quickly. All men before Christ are like pitchers of filthy water. All men and all women before Jesus Christ has come into your life for salvation, you are like a pitcher of filthy water. Now, it's so important that we understand Jesus Christ says, okay, the natural process of purification was to bring a a pitcher full of 75% so that you could add in the wine, right? So in other words, you have your life of filthy Let's add in the righteousness, and what do we get? We get somewhat of a pure system, right? Jesus tells his disciples to go out and to fill the pitchers, how full? All the way to the top. Okay, Jesus Christ is going to do something that's outside of any of your own righteousness. We'll get to that here in a moment. Before Christ, we are all like pitchers of water. I don't have time to go through the text that we have here, Romans 3. Verses 10 through 23, the Bible says, No one seeks after God. No one is good. There is none righteous, no, not one. Guess what? That means all of us, before Jesus Christ comes into our lives, we are unrighteous. We are sinful. We are like a pitcher of filthy water. And we keep trying to add wine to it. We keep trying to add self-righteousness to it. We keep trying to add our own goodness to it to make it seem like it's good. And it's not enough, is it? It's never going to be enough. We are all... 
like pitchers of filthy water before we are saved. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 1 through 3, he says, You, he hath made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our own flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, whereby nature children of wrath, just as the others. Let's go on. The Bible says that we must come to Jesus for cleansing. Jesus says to his disciples, go out and gather these pots and fill them up with water and bring them to me. And what Jesus Christ is going to do is he's going to perform a miracle. We've got to come to Jesus. The Bible says in John 6 and verse 37, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast any of them out. If you come to Jesus Christ for purification, if you come to Jesus Christ and you desire to be saved, to be set apart for His work, to be purified in your life, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will in no way deny you. He will never deny you. Now the Bible also says that we in our flesh and our sinfulness are unwilling to come to the Lord. But He says if you do come to the Lord, He will never deny you. But He also says this, He says that God in His sovereignty will bring you to the Lord. And when God in His sovereignty brings you to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ will purify you. He will cleanse you. He will wash you as white as snow. The Bible says in Isaiah, though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be like wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. This is the work of Jesus Christ purifying and cleansing your life, purifying and cleansing my life. It doesn't come through self-righteousness. It doesn't come through self-goodness. It doesn't come through self-effort. It comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You will never enter into the presence of God and experience acceptance unless you come through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You might add your 25% righteousness to your 75% of unrighteousness and you will end up with an unpure pot. What we need is 100% righteousness. We will never enter God's presence and be accepted unless we enter into God's presence with 100% righteousness, which will never be our own. It must be that of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, and we go on, and he said, fill the water pots. The word fill here means to fill them to the top. It's the Greek word gamizo, the idea of don't, don't leave any space in there. Jesus Christ doesn't want there to be any question as to what miracle was performed. Jesus Christ doesn't want there to be any doubt as to whether or not salvation was totally of him or whether or not it was partial him, partial them. He doesn't need any of our space. Kids, listen, we don't need to clean up our own lives. We can't. The idea of, well, I'm going to section a piece of my life off for Jesus. You know, there's 75% that's for me and then 25% is for Jesus. You're losing sight of what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ doesn't add to your life. Jesus Christ changes your life. Jesus Christ does not subsidize your empty spots. Jesus Christ changes all of your spots. He doesn't want us to come to Him partially full and say, hey, you know what, Lord? I only got 75% of my day filled up, so I want you to take that last 25%. He's not there to fill your emptiness. He's there to change you. He's there to transform you. Folks, if He fills your emptiness, whether it be 99%, 1%, that 1% will keep you out of heaven. He's not there to add to you. He's there to change you. He's there to transform you. We must come to Jesus as a full pot. 
We must come to Jesus not offering Him any help. He doesn't need our help. We must come to Jesus recognizing that we're completely unclean. That every ounce and every drop of that pitcher full of water is unclean. Jesus says in Isaiah that all of our righteousnesses are like what? They're like filthy rags. Salvation is when somebody comes to Jesus Christ and kneels before Him and acknowledges that they are complete and total sinners and that they need salvation through Jesus Christ. John chapter number 1 and verse 9, Jesus says through John, if you confess your sins, if you confess that you are a sinner, if you confess that you are unclean, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You want to experience the cleansing of Jesus Christ, you've got to come to Him a full pot of dirtiness. No self-righteousness, no self-proclamation, no self-preservation. You come to Jesus for who you are, and you acknowledge who you are before Him. You accept who you are before Him, that you are dirty, you are unclean. Back in Genesis, He says, all of our imaginations are only wicked continually. All of these things are a reality of who all men are before they come to the Lord for salvation. We must acknowledge that. And then we will find forgiveness. We will find salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can and will transform you, renew you, and rebirth you. Let me say this to you this morning. I want to encourage you. If you're not who you think you should be, Jesus Christ can change that. If you're not what God commands you to be, Jesus Christ can change that. You say, Pastor John, I was born this way. We're all born sinners, right? The Bible says that Jesus Christ will do what? John chapter number 3. Jesus Christ will reborn us. So it's no excuse to say, well, I was born this way. This is just the way that I am. Well, that's great. That's fine. It's good that you acknowledge that and accept that. But I serve a Jesus that's able to change who I am. I serve a Jesus who's able to transform me. Jesus Christ can transform, renew, and rebirth us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new what? The new creature. That means he's a different being, doesn't it? I was a lion before, now I'm a tiger. That's a different creature entirely, isn't it? I was a sinner before, but now I'm righteous. It's a completely different individual. Jesus Christ has the ability to change who you are. One of the most defeating things and discouraging things for our young people today is they just think that they can't change. And you're right, you can't change, but Jesus can change you. Jesus can transform you. He has the power to do so. Jesus Christ can transform you. He can renew you and He can rebirth you as a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says that He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become what? That we might become righteous. He who knew no sin became sin for you, that He might become righteous. Verse 11, I want to finish with this. The beginning of signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Let me say this to you in closing. Jesus does this for His own glory. It's the only reason why Jesus does what He does. Everything that Jesus does is for the glory of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 that He saves so that we might glorify Him. He saves that we might honor Him. He saves that we might praise Him. You may be sitting here this morning, and I don't know, I don't know barely any of your situations. I don't know a lot of you kids. But you may be sitting here in our uh, time together, and you may be in that situation where you're like, you know what, 
I know that who I am and what I do is not what the Lord wants of me. And I know that if I try my hardest, I'll fall flat on my face again. I've done it a hundred times. I've done it a thousand times. I just can't be free from this temptation, from this sin. What I'm telling you this morning is, is you're like everybody else in the world today who has been bound by sin. In whom Jesus Christ is capable of bringing deliverance. Jesus Christ is able not just to change water into wine. But guys and ladies, Jesus Christ is capable of turning unrighteousness into righteousness. He's capable of turning dirt into purity. He's capable of taking your life and transforming it so that you might live His life. Paul said it this way, Galatians 2 and 20, I am crucified with Christ. I am dead. But Paul says, Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but it is Christ living in me. Jesus Christ is capable of taking your life and giving you His life. Jesus Christ is capable of taking your dirty water and making it into pure wine. What we need to do, all of us, come before Him in humble repentance, acknowledging who we are and acknowledging that we need Him to save us. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have to open it up, the freedom that we have as a people to study and to learn it. And for those this morning, dear God, that have ears to hear and eyes to see, I pray that you will, that you will use this truth in this text to change their lives, that they won't look at the Word anymore the same as they have before. And others, I pray, dear God, that you would perhaps perform that act of transformation, that, that giving of eyes to see and giving of ears to hear. Lord, primarily that you might be glorified and honored in it. We pray that you would bless these teenagers throughout this day, that you'll use them and teach them and instruct them. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor John Prettyman at Grace Bible Fellowship. Well, this wraps up the program today. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus.